Lisa Carson Price for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Coming to you from the Go Sports Studio, built by Arbor Week. You're at the iconic Wall Center downtown Vancouver. If you're up by the airport looking for a snack, we suggest the apron. The Western Wall Center YVR eat locally fresh. Eat well. Matt Scarce alongside Jeff Patterson sitting in for Blake Price today and all week. And Trevor Martins in switches conducting things in place of a vacation in Grady Sass. This show, a presentation of Applewood Auto Group. We're right now at Applewood Nissan Langley, Applewood Nissan Surrey, Applewood Nissan Richmond. You can get into the 23 Rogue SV. This is an all-wheel drive vehicle, $99 weekly, a 24-month lease. The 23 Murano SL at $135 weekly. And the iconic Pathfinder, the 23 SL edition, at 318 bi-weekly because Jeff Patterson. It's all good at Applewood. And actually, I saw Blake's uh, Outlander. vehicle the other day. Mm. Yeah, out at uh, Hazelmere for the golf tournament that we played in. And I, after the round, drove him right to his car. The shiniest looking one on the lot there mm-hmm. in the parking lot. So uh, looked good. It's a beautiful vehicle. Yeah. We uh, did not play particularly well at Hazelmere. We were okay. Yeah, you know, in hindsight, we were okay. We were okay. I'm not sure we were better than that, but no, we held no, our own. I, I was terrible. I felt dreadful. I was dragging the group down. It was a scramble. And why don't we just start right there, Jeff? Because uh, this was a very important tournament to us on Monday at Hazelmere, um, because we got a chance to go out and celebrate the life of a someone who's been a friend of yours for thirty plus years. Someone who came. A, uh, into the Sakarison Price and Go-Go Sports Orbit a couple of years ago, the one and only Jeff Seiko, who we lost back in the spring. Yeah, passed away from cancer back in March, and uh, apparently he didn't want a celebration of life, and it's taken a while <laughs> for his wife Tara and his close circle of friends, and they thought, you know what, we're going to tie this together with a golf tournament for the National Golf Course Owners Association, National Golf Course uh, Owners of Canada, and so these are owner operators, and mm-hmm. Jeff was he was I mean he was a designated pro. I first met him as the head pro at Rivershore when we lived and worked in Kamloops. He went to Salmon Arm with his wife. They went to Nicholas North up in Whistler, mm-hmm. and then he realized, you know what? I've seen enough inefficiencies in the way that all these golf courses that I've worked at have been run. I'm going to get into the consulting business and help out other golf courses mm-hmm. make money. And he was very good at that. And he and Tara were a terrific team. And they traveled the world, and they were remote workers before remote work was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, uh, yeah, so just a really good guy. And you saw that on Monday at Hazelmere. Uh, they finished the night with a celebration of life, and people, most of the people stuck around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a room full of people telling stories, and just universally regarded, uh, well-liked, even-keeled. I think the business side, people mm-hmm. in business appreciated you know, that he wasn't a guy that flew off the handle, but no. he was able to work with these golf courses and help them realize where they were spending money, where they didn't have to, or ways that they could up their revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the personal side, just, uh, you know, a big circle of friends. And bon vivant. He, yeah, he lived so. life. Yeah. And they asked me to MC, mm-hmm. and uh, it was the least I could do for a day like that. And it was an honor to be asked. And so you try to keep those things as light as you can, given sort of the, uh, the context. Uh, on the golf side, though, yes, it was a golf tournament that involved a lot of people in the golf industry, including mm-hmm. a, a number of pros, local pros. So right. when I said, you know, we held our own, we mm-hmm. did, but context matters, that 
It wasn't about winning, but we were we were never <laughs> yeah. going to win that event. Jeff's motto was "Live your best life," and yeah. we all walked away from Hazelmere on Monday thinking that. With that front of mine, and you mentioned you first met him at River Shore, and I just want to shout out the pro there right now, Kevin Oates, who's a big Secure Some Price listener and who's had Blake and I out to his fabulous golf course in the past when we've been up at Kamloops. Yeah. Usually, long overdue to play River Shore for BC I Lions. Played it a lot when I lived uh, and worked up there. Training camp, yes. It's a marvelous golf course. All right, Bodog poll question today. Thanks for that, Jeff. I, I, when got you here in studio, I wanted you, you yeah. to say a few words about Jeff. And thank you very much to Teresico and Joan Probert yes. for having us out there on Monday. We were uh, delighted to celebrate Jeff's life. Bodog poll question today. Is the lack of a practice facility holding the Canucks back? Yes or no? You can vote at Securison Price on Twitter. Bodog, your source, free casino games, poker strategy, and sports odds. Bodog, line of the day for me. The Lions are four-point favorites in Montreal Saturday, coming off a pair of losses. That's a bit much for me. I'm going to take the points on your Bodog line of the day. Why are we talking practice facility? Well, because Rick Talkett is talking practice facility. Interview with Ian McIntyre, and he's asked about how he hoped the group would come back by mid-August and centralize and skate together, and alas, that hasn't happened, and that hasn't happened because the Vancouver Canucks do not have a permanent practice facility to call their own, which would have facilitated the players getting together. Now, some Canucks are in town, and as Talkett points out, the whole group is going to get here next week. But they're the one NHL team that doesn't have one, Jeff. Calgary, right? Sorry, now. Cal- they're one of two NHL teams that don't have one. Um, we know it was a problem last year in training camp because they were doing things like morning skate at UBC for Abbotsford preseason games. It's the type of thing that agents and players now ask about in free agency. And of course, it just makes the life of the players a whole lot easier on a day-to-day basis in season and out of season, because of course, Rogers arena is a busy facility hosting concerts and other matters. And there are some days where the Vancouver Canucks do not have access to the facility. So I voted. Yes. It's standard industry practice right now. It's a tool that allows you to be your best. I know the Aquilinis have been looking for all sorts of partnerships on this side for some time, but time is running short here. I think it's time for them to buck up and build one to keep up with the NHL Joneses. Yeah, and I voted yes as well. Look, there are more significant factors that go into building a winning hockey club, but I don't think this helps the organization in any way. And so uh, if it's not helping them, then it is hurting them to some degree. And you're right, and I've had the good fortune out traveling uh, to see a number of the practice facilities, uh, and they seem to get bigger and better uh, every year and every time a, a new one is constructed. Some of them are attached to the NHL rinks, like the one in Detroit, Little Caesars Arena, is phenomenal in as much as you've got the NHL NBA rink. And then there is an underground. Now, it sounds crazy. It's a little bit of bunker, a, a little bit of a bunker, but it's down the hall. So the Red Wings only ever use their locker room, their training facilities, the medical facilities, and everything else. They turn left to go to the NHL rink, when the Pistons are playing and the basketball floor is down, they turn right and they go down yep. down a set of stairs or an elevator to a practice rink that, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Now, not everybody's going to build you an underground bunker practice facility. The but, biggest- Jeff, 
Plaza of Nations across the street. You it almost wonder if oh, the, the, I pull the, my you, hair out on that. It makes so much sense, and it needs an upgrade and an overhaul. And that end of town needs a an ice Oh, rink. absolutely. When you think all the towers it's, in Yale Town, I, I, and the population I was, growth. I had someone here a few weeks ago who didn't know Vancouver, and they sort of we were on the other side of False Creek, and they pointed and they go, "What's that?" And I go, "Well, that used to be Once a casino." Upon a time, yeah. And I guess some of the facilities are used still there. But I said it's the one piece of undeveloped land in downtown Vancouver, really. And it's right across from Rogers Arena and BC Place. Now, the Kraken in Seattle, New Kids on the Block, theirs is north of the city. It's attached to Northgate Mall, if people in Vancouver uh, know their bearings there. You know, Vegas came along not that long ago. The rinks on the strip are just offset uh, behind New York, New York. But their practice facility out in Summerlin, but it's a terrific facility with a couple of sheets of ice, a restaurant. Um, you know, so there are a couple of ways you can approach it. And but the bottom line in all of this is, like, it hasn't hurt the Canucks in as much as they've still been able to sign free agents. But I do think that free agents and their agents understand the landscape around the NHL. There are thirty-two teams, thirty-two ways of operating. And it's fair to think that they would ask, all right, if they don't have a practice facility, what else don't they have? Well, it's not only that, Jeff. It's the camaraderie of guys being together more often. I think that's what Talkit was getting at. And look, I can completely understand when the Aquilinis first had this file before them. They do the cost-benefit analysis and go, that's a lot of money for one hour a day or a couple hours of day or however long the NHL players are going to use it. And that it makes infinite sense to do some sort of partnership with the city or with uh, other levels of government to make the ice available to recreational um, citizens thereafter. That's an ideal world. But the file's been sitting there languishing for more than a decade now, almost a decade and a half. And at some point, I do think you have to say, look, the onus here is on us to build it. And then maybe you do some sort of partnership thereafter or heaven forbid. I know this is not the Aquilini way. Just run it. Manage it. Rent it out. Yeah. Find a way. Look, we're coming up on two years since Jim Rutherford took over, and on his first day on the job, he said that this was one of the top priorities was to identify a location and get a shovel in the ground for a practice facility. And so he's coming up on two years here uh, and nothing doing. But, you know, you made the point last year uh, about dressing one place and playing somewhere else. Like, I know for a fact that players grumbled in the preseason last year. They sure did. All the renovations that were going on, there were cost overruns and delays. And so, yeah, like like Bruce Boudreau got saddled with this notion that training camp was run poorly. And I always thought it was totally unfair that neither Patrick Alvin nor Jim Rutherford put their hand up and said, some of that's on us. Uh, yeah, for some sure. Of that, we forced you out of your own business where every minute of practice time matters and the commute okay. back and forth. And look, we're dealing with pampered athletes. I get it. Like some people are saying, what's the big deal? Oh, this is a first world seen? problem. We completely understand that. But, but it's, it's uh, 32 teams are all right. vying for the same thing. And you want to get off to a good start. And you put your team behind the eight ball mm-hmm. with the crappy logistics well, of preseason and practicing one and, place and playing in another. And to your point about Alvin and Rutherford not taking responsibility 
Jeff, there was a PR campaign to be waged back then against their own head coach. That's just how dysfunctional this organization was 12, year, uh, 12 months ago. Yesterday's Bodog poll question, will Kuzmenko score 40 goals this season? Yes or no? What do the people say? No. Correct. Percentage? Eh, I'll say 55. 65. Ooh. A lot of doubters there. Hmm. I voted yes. Chris says no, and I think he'll struggle to get 30 unless he generates more shots. I can't see a repeat of his 27% shooting percentage. That said, Guillermo, I think he cracks 40. Quote, but his shooting percentage was so high, surely he will regress. Watch how he plays. He has a goal-scoring touch that is tough to teach. He also takes a lot of shots from in and around the net, tip-ins, backdoor plays that are high-percentage shots. So I can see the shooting percentage maintaining. And At a decent does, level. He doesn't waste shots. Like That's he, it. He's not a volume shooter. Uh, there's a playmaker there. And you're right. I mean, those like I, I think the the tap-ins and the blue paint, the backdoor goals, those are repeatable. Maybe For not sure quite at the same level, but pretty damn close, mm-hmm. I think. So I think he's a bit of a unicorn when it comes to shooting percentage. I agree. Pat says most players regress the second season in the NHL. Could be they found the first year easy or that other teams marked them more. There is that. His agent, Dan Milstein, also acknowledged to us yesterday, look, he wasn't in the best shape last year. KHL players don't tend to be in NHL shape. And they set about trying to fix that this summer with his uh, Bali excursion and everything they put in place to get Kuzmenko into better shape. All right. Moving on, I see you picked well, up. Well, just before, or maybe you're moving on to Mikheyev, are you? Yes, or, I am. Oh, I was going to say, I was glad you pointed out to Milstein, a great interview uh, and I know we've been trying to get him on the show for a little while here. He's been in Russia a lot. You can take his show on the road as you, like, one night with Dan Milstein. I told them to take a chill pill. <laughs> he said to the Canucks, even the janitor was against Kuzmenko going to Bali. I told them, take a chill pill. This is what we do. Um, I saw you picked up on the little bit of news he dropped about Ilya Mikheyev. For your hockey news mm-hmm. um, column yesterday, and if you don't know, Jeff is now editing, managing the hockey news, uh, the Canucks hockey news page, and you should check it out. Uh, there's going to be another consult with doctors here, and just my read on Milstein's answer was that Ilya's going to want to push this because look, he played on a torn ACL for half of last year. He wants to be there for his teammates, wants to get back at it, and that they have to remind him this is a marathon, not a sprint. So. It sounded to me like they'll probably take it easy in preseason with Mikheyev. Perhaps there's even a world where he starts on IR. Who knows? We'll see what these doctors say. We'll see how he progresses. But, yeah, he's an important player for the Vancouver Canucks. And in the start of the season is clearly important after two straight Octobers that basically had them out of it. What was your takeaway from what you heard on the calf. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he is coming along. Again, this is a significant injury and surgery, and so it sounds like the recovery is progressing nicely, but there was the one line in there where Dan said, hopefully he's ready for the start of the season, and that kind of snapped me to attention a little bit, just that, you know, it's been out of sight, out of mind. We'd had reports that everything was tracking. I, I expected but, a full, oh, yeah, he'll be ready, he's good to go, but and it wasn't quite that. No. And so, you know, then he talked about having to talk to the doctors again. And obviously, this is an NHL or he's going to be monitored with the best medical advice, you know, possible and available to him. But it didn't sound like he was at a green light stage yet to 
you know, hit the ground running at training camp. Now, it's three weeks from the start of training camp until October 11th, which is when they do start playing for keeps. And I think maybe for more than any other player on the Canucks roster, those three weeks are right. vital to a guy like Mikheyev to continue this recovery. And so if they have to hold him out of a training camp session or two, if he doesn't play a lot in the preseason, you know, that's just being prudent here and being right. and taking the cautious approach. Of course, he got hurt in the preseason last year. Right. And Would you say, like, he's a veteran player? Yeah. One preseason, preseason game? Would that suffice? I mean, I think when you've gone through what he's gone through, you'd want to test yourself. Right. And so I would think that you'd probably want a couple uh, just to make sure that you're not getting false reads on one game. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, they've got six on the schedule. Nobody, none of the veterans will play anywhere close to six. And if training camp comes and... Usually you know, the last one is when a lot of the regulars yeah. play anyway. But, so. but, you know, if training camp comes and he's not quite feeling it, if he needs to take a day off from the ice sessions or whatever, like, I don't think people should be alarmed at that. Maintenance yeah. days might be a thing with him. And, yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. fine. More on this talking interview with McIntyre. And this one popped a red flag for us as well. Jason King no longer the power play coach. He's on the Minnesota Wild staff. Talkit says the power play will be done in combination with Sergei Gonchar, who is still a part-time coach for the Canucks, won't make every road trip, with the Sedin twins. And Talkit says hopefully when Gonchar can't make road trips, one of the twins can. And with the head coach himself in consultation with the players. Now, King told us when we interviewed him last month, whenever it was, he took a lot of feedback and there was a lot of constructive um, meeting about the power play that involved JT Miller and the other principals. So I love the fact that the players are still going to have a voice here because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to have to go out and execute. But the way it's going to be set up with potentially four voices at the front of the room, Jeff... What was your takeaway there? Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little murky. And I, I do think it's important that there's accountability and that the buck stops with somebody. I kind of like the idea of some. I mean, that's why Rick Tockett's the head coach. You don't have five assistant coaches. Somebody's And, and he says, I'll take a big chunk yep. of it for now, but we'll go from there. So look, it's a Tock- fluid situation. Yeah, and Tockett's had success as an NHLer scoring goals. And so has Sergey Gonchar. And obviously the Twins know their way around running an NHL power play. Uh, the elephant in the room is who replaces Bo Horvat, right? Like, That's it. It's a huge part Patterson of their and success. Miller and Hughes can come up with ideas, but so much of that power play ran through the middle of the ice with Bo <laughs> Horvat. And Anthony Bavillier scored three power play goals after he was acquired. He didn't replace Horvat. Not that anybody expected that he would, but I don't think he's the answer. And so, you know, is there room for Brock Besser on that first unit? He's a right shot guy. They've always liked the lefty in the bumper to get the service from the left wing boards. Uh, again, I, I think that they're wasting the talents of their best offensive player in Elias Pettersson as a decoy with the one-timer, and teams started to shade that way and take it away. I want to see Pettersson closer to the net with the puck on his stick. It, could he not play the JT Miller role over on the left side as the guy that's providing service? Maybe Pettersson could slide to the middle. I mean, we know he can shoot the puck. Could he mm-hmm. be the bumper guy? So I, I'm kind of need it, a left shot there. So yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, like this idea of. Oh, the collective and by committee and all that's fine, but I want to know who's uh, the X yeah. factor, who's who's playing the middle 
on this Canucks first unit power play. Talkin says the captaincy is still fluid. He's going to rely on the leadership group. You do wonder whether we're moving more and more towards three A's and no captain. He says uh, he was quite honest with regards to Pedersen and no contract extension. He said he's unsure how PD is going to handle the pressure of a contract year. And I think that was good honesty because, well, Pedersen has said it's to get off to a good start this season. As you reminded us last week, Jeff, the last time his contract dragged in the season, he did not get off to a good start. And then there was this quote. And look, this may sound normal in a Vancouver Canucks context, knowing what we know about Elias Pedersen and his comments last week. This is hardly normal for a well-run organization. Quote, if PD sees a well-run organization, a well-run coaching staff, and he sees improvement from our players, our role players, even the star players, I know he loves the city. I know the fan base embraces him. So if we can check most of the boxes, maybe that will be more enticing for him to sign. That's just my take on it. This is the head coach basically acknowledging it's been a shit show here, yeah. and we've got to get better to convince the star player he should stick around. No, I kind of read that as, uh, you know, we got to throw the Hail Mary and hope that, you know, well, I hope it's a higher percentage chance than a Hail Mary here, Jeff. Like, I hope it's a third and ten more so. Fair enough. Maybe we're not to Hail Mary territory <laughs> yet. Clock's not ticking down. But I just got, I, I read that as uh, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of ifs. You know, when he talks about checking boxes, this is an organization that has you know completed the task very often. They've come close over the years on three occasions, at least getting to the final. But you know. There are still a lot of balls in play here when it comes to Elias Pettersson and for the coach to say, well, you know, if we're able to do this and do this and do this, then maybe that will be enough to convince him. Uh, certainly leaves some yeah. question about Elias Pettersson's future and, and sort of the way that the coach sees it playing out. He gets asked if he's got a true third-line center, and he doesn't name Pew Suter. He says right now, yeah, it's a committee production-wise. We'll see. And then he goes on to talk about Vegas and, you know, having uh, interchangeable parts and a, and a lot of potential contributors. That probably just to motivate Pio Suter and say, hey, look, nothing's going to be gifted to you here. But maybe he has his own opinions. Maybe he thinks that Teddy Bluger is the better player or the better profile of player. Maybe he would prefer Nils Oman, who's a bigger body, if he can get those face-offs down thought that was an interesting answer in that he wouldn't commit. Yeah, I wonder how familiar he is with Suter. Uh, he talked it was out of work, was in TV, would have watched some, but, you know, Suter's only played three ga- three years in the National Hockey League. And so I wonder if he fully grasps. And, and you would expect an NHL coach would have working knowledge, but at the same time, uh, you know, if he hasn't had to match up against a guy and game plan and those types of things then it's understandable that maybe he doesn't have the full read on the player that he's getting. I was a little surprised that he didn't at least give him the benefit of the doubt. As, I, I was too. You know, right off the hop, but maybe there is a, a motivation, motivational card being played. And then on the penalty killing uh, with regards to what good teams do and some of the new guys are coming in, Sus, uh, Sus, Susie and Cole, quote, they're willing to block shots. They don't let pucks through them. They knock pucks down. That's what good penalty killers do you and I both read into that? He knows the penalty kill has been a train wreck for a couple of years now, and guys just frankly aren't committing to what they need to do to be a better PK unit.
And I'm excited about the penalty kill, which is a sentence that hasn't been uttered in Vancouver in many, many years. But, or in many places. But, many, I, many but not only did they address it and bring players in that have done this and with relative degrees of success elsewhere, but you are eliminating the guys that weren't doing it. Like Oliver Ekman Larson. Wasn't happening for him. Bo Horvat, well, he was here for whatever reason. Always profiled as a guy that should have been a better penalty killer than he was. You know, Kyle Burrows and Ethan Bear saw a fair bit of time when they were in the lineup last year, and we know where the penalty kill percentage was. So they're now out of the mix, and now you've brought in guys that have had some success. Like I do think that there is a chance that the penalty kill, and again, it's late August. This is all on paper. They've got to prove this, and they open with back-to-back games against McDavid and the Oilers and the best power play in the NHL in recent memory. So they're going to be put to the test right away. But I think that they've got guys that are willing to do some of these things that Rick Tockett mentioned yep. there, and you hope. Like, again, penalty kill finished just a shade over 70% for the season under Tockett. It was higher than that, but it was still in the bottom third of the league. So, yes, it got better under Tockett, but, boy, there's still oh, plenty tons. of room for improvement. <laughs> yes. But, you know, can it be league average? Because even league average would be a monumental step forward for a team that's been 32nd and 31st the last two years. <laughs> Moving on to football. Nathan Rourke goes unclaimed on NFL waivers and signs on the Jacksonville Jaguars practice roster. Gotta say, a little disappointed. We saw the Patriots waived a couple of quarterbacks yeah. last year, including Bailey Zappi, who played okay for them. I did wonder whether the hoodie was up to something with Rourke. I'm also stunned that based on his preseason performance and the athletic tools toolkit that he brings to the table, that nobody else took a crack at Nathan Rourke at the most important position. There were 11 teams other than Jacksonville that worked him out last year, as Justin Dunk of Three Down Nation reported. Cardinals, Colts, Broncos, Raiders, Browns, Bucks, Chargers, Vikings, Giants, Bengals, Chiefs. None of them took a flare. Like Arizona, going into the season with Dobbs at quarterback, I mean, would have thought. Take a crack at Rourke. Anthony Richardson, who is a very crude passer right now, just not very fundamentally sound there, not an advanced passer, even at the collegiate level, let alone the NFL level. I thought Rourke might have been a nice understudy there, someone who could come in if Richardson doesn't work out there, and several of these other teams as well. And I guess I'm just a little bit disappointed because it doesn't sound like he got the opportunity he was hoping to get in Jacksonville with head coach Doug Peterson rooted in the notion of veteran C.J. Beathard being their, being their backup. So Rourke's going to have to bide his time there. Yeah. Uh, there is a dispensation this year in the NFL that you can dress the third quarterback on game day. It doesn't count against your your roster limit, so we'll see if he gets dressed at any point. So he gets the experience. He gets that game day feel at the very right. least. I, I'm with you. And though. on the sidelines, yeah. and like hopefully he's a good set of eyes for Trevor Lawrence yep. and the offensive staff. No, he can still be involved that way and feel like he's involved, but I'm like you. I, I <laughs> thought that... You know, beyond the highlight reel stuff that he did in the preseason, that there's just enough, the fundamentals, that he's sound enough, that he had shown enough, that I thought yeah. that there would have been a team out there. I would there. have thought, too. I mean, I mean Tampa Bay's going to play Baker Mayfield? 
Really? Raiders, Jimmy Garoppolo, got two Ohio teams there. That's where he played his college football and was a big star at Ohio University. So, yeah. Things, uh, things can change in a hurry. One knock no, somewhere. Of, of course. Of course. We'll As for the Lions, they're back at practice in advance of Saturday's game in Montreal. A rare Labor Day weekend game for the Lions. They had been become accustomed to having this weekend off without a natural geographic rival. Jalen Edwards-Cooper missed practice yesterday on the wide corner. He had been hurt earlier this year as well. It may well be that Mike Jones, a former Alouette, is going to get his chance to play here this week in La Belle Provence. Did you want it? Uh, just a little bit of heat on the Lions, really, for the yeah, first time all season. Yeah, Back-to-back for sure. losses. Um, now, as, and a real stinker at home against yeah, Hamilton. No, I mean, highly I mentioned just, earlier in the week, I was messaging with uh, Ryan Phillips and Mike Benavides, and, you know, they got a little grit in their teeth here this week. Sure. Uh, and while they're involved in a Labor Day game, obviously Labor Day means Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, back-to-back. And so that's going to be tough for Saskatchewan, obviously. But if Saskatchewan somehow finds a way... They usually get the one in Regina. Like right. That is a really so tough now, environment to the, win. The Lions have been hanging with Winnipeg and sort of keeping pace, but now they're two games back of the Bombers, and I know that there's still a game October 6th here. Uh, but the, that's one. They need to make up another one. And as Blake said earlier right. in the week, you pretty much can only afford one more loss here if you think you've got a chance of... of Right, of beating Winnipeg, and it can't be to Winnipeg. And that's why, so I think now they're sort of forced to look over their shoulder at Saskatchewan. They lost to Saskatchewan, and, you know, just one loss to Hamilton. This one is more a, against the Riders, too, so yeah. that'll determine tiebreaker. Yeah, and Montreal's kind of quietly going about its business, not getting headlines in the CFL, but there are certainly weaker opponents out there mm-hmm. than the Montreal Alouette. So this won't be easy for a yeah. Lions team that's dropped back-to-back games. And I, I just I worry that the Lions maybe have found their level a little bit and maybe we overvalued them based on wins against Calgary and Edmonton earlier in the season. You're not right. going to see we got a message and the, and the uh, stamps in, in the playoffs. We got a message from a listener about that, guys. I think we got drunk on the Alberta teams earlier this year and... and may not be as good as we thought them to be. You're right about Montreal. They still have to go to Hamilton as well uh, before the season is over. Whitecaps are in Chicago tonight. It's the second of seven straight on the road, coming off that big victory in Portland. Andres Kubes, unavailable tonight, suspended card accumulation. And look, a midweek game coming off a Saturday game. They're off to New York on the weekend. This looks to be the spot where I think Vanny Sartini is going to hope some guys who don't play as often get him through this game, get him a result, because you do have to play a little bit of the long game here if you're Sartini and the Whitecaps facing five more road games after this one. So we're expecting some deal, some degree of rotation Tonight, I think you're going to see some substitutions tonight that aren't necessarily performance-based and more load management-based. So I would suspect that you'll see Cordova at some point tonight in the striker role with Brian White uh, or or in place of Brian White. I would suspect you'll see Atacube in some sort of rotation here tonight as well. So uh, a bit of a piecemeal game, I suspect, for Whitecaps FC against the Chicago side that doesn't score a lot of goals. They're in the thick of it in the East, but they don't score a lot of goals. Who knows? This may well even be one of those park the bus scenarios for Vancouver. 
But if they can get another win on a seven-game road trip and start with two victories right off the hop, I know Blake was like mm-hmm. three wins and three draws would be an incredible road trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, boy, if they could put two wins in the bank. And as you said, like Chicago is holding down the final playoff spot in the East right now. So yep. not world beaters by any stretch of the imagination. And, and NYCFC is actually not very good. Right. And then they go to Toronto, so, and we know that Toronto's yeah. had a miserable season. So, yes, it's seven away from home, and that's never easy. But it's not a murderer's row on mm-hmm. this road trip. And they're one to the good now after a nice result in Portland. So let's see what they can do to back it up in Chicago. Both the Jays and the Mariners lose last night. And both are now dealing with some significant injury concern. For the Blue Jays, Bo Bichette has joined Matt Chapman on the IL. So the entire side of the entire left side of the infield right now is unavailable. J-Rod has a foot problem for the Mariners. He's out of the lineup today and is quite frustrated because he doesn't know exactly how it came about. Both the Texas team, Texas teams won last night. Boston lost again. I think we're about ready to write off the Red Sox. And then the Vancouver Canadians, last night, as we foreshadowed, postponed because of rain. It's being made up as part of a doubleheader on Thursday. So doubleheader on Thursday, Starting at 5 p.m., Seesaw outfielder Devontae Brown called up to double-A. He'd been very good for them. Uh, OPS over 800, 14 home runs. As we have been telling you, this is the last homestand of the regular season. The Seas are hosting, well, at least one playoff game, if not more, if necessary, at the Nat in the middle of September. And just, we'll message this just because I know you're looking at it going, oh, we had tickets for last night's game, and when are we going to be able to make it up? You can use them for the remaining games this week through Sunday or for the playoff game. Contact the box office. Of course, playoff game based on availability. The whole week, actually, based on availability. Call the box office, 604-872-5232 if you need any guidance or instruction on how to use your C's tickets from last night for this makeup date. Basketball, Canada, in Jakarta, Indonesia, after winning their pool, we now know they're going to play Brazil Friday morning. That's a 6 a.m. start here. And Sunday against Spain, and that is also a 6 a.m. start. Group winners now starting to get meteor bones headed their way with Brazil and Spain after taking care of, well, France should have been good, but wasn't France, Latvia, and Lebanon in pool play. Let's get to today's menu. It's brought to you by De Dutch, De Breakfast, De Lunch, De Brunch. Get it all at De Dutch. We'll talk to Frank Corrado. And Frank has great insight on Kuzmenko's Bali adventure, on Ilya Mikheyev, on practice facilities, on a power play by piecemeal head coach, assistant coach, development guys in the Sedines. Also talk to, we'll do some hashtags as well. Also talk to pra- uh, Patrick Johnson, who's been all over the practice facility beat, as well as uh, third-line center, and the possibility that Ilya Mikheyev just may not be good to go from the start of the season. Happy Hour brought to you by Yellow Dog Brewing Neighborhood Brewing Workshop Spirits, and the weather's getting a little cooler, but we're still pretending we're thriving in the summer. That's summer heat with Workshop Spirits. Ombre margarita, hi there, hard lemon iced tea, and hi there, our peach iced tea will keep you feeling tropical all year long. End of the workday, treat yourself to a yellow dog neighborhood 
our workshop spirit. No matter what you're buying, folks, when you're out in the world looking for this, that, and the other, I think you want to support businesses that you feel good about supporting. You can feel good about supporting the Applewood Auto Group. Uh, They've made the car business and communities around them a whole lot better with their work in the community. Go and find out why it is indeed all good at Applewood. Visit them online anytime at applewood.ca. Some price from Wall Center, a presentation of Applewood Auto Group. And right now, at Applewood Kia, you can get in. I know Blake's been talking about the Mitsubishi Outlander and how much he loves it. And yes, we encourage you to check out the Outlander. But at Applewood Kia, you can get in the 2023 Nero EV starting at $44,995, 6.49%. Up to 84 months because it's all good at Applewood. Bodog poll question today asking you, is the lack of a practice facility holding the Canucks back? Yes or no? Vote at Sakarison Price on Twitter. Bodog, your source, free casino games, poker strategy, and sports odds. And given their performance so far, how could you not pick Canada Friday versus Brazil at the FIBA World Cup? Huge spread here at 17.5 points you'd have to lay. Or how about the money line where you got to put down $1,800 to win 100 on your Bodog line of the day? We're with Frank Corrado, NHL analyst with TSN, former Vancouver Canuck. How are we doing this week, Frankie? Good, good. I'm, I'm imagining you guys want to talk about the Sheldon Keefe extension in Toronto and, and get into that today. <laughs> All the Do you think he's the guy? Um, I, I'm sure that's a very big talking point uh, in Toronto. In yeah. fact, there's two weeks in a row here, very big talking points uh, where you're based with the Leafs. No, no, uh, we're going to keep it Canuck here, Frank, and Rick Tockett today telling Ian McIntyre that while he hoped guys would centralize here in Vancouver in mid-August and start getting their skates in with Rogers Arena going through yet another renovation, of course, a busy facility to begin with, and no practice facility, it didn't really happen. It's not going to really happen until next week. Um I know you had a practice facility in Toronto. Did you have one in Pittsburgh? Is it absolutely necessary now for NHL teams to have their own standalone practice facilities? Yeah, 100%. So we had a great one in Toronto. We might have had an even better one in Pittsburgh, to be honest with you. Like, that's how good their facility is there. But we've just reached the point now where for players, whether it's development or performance or or enhancing everything, you need that one-stop shop where, where everything is kind of based out of. Um, and it just, it adds a lot, like talking, even talking about the guys coming into town a little bit early. Like I remember when I came out to Vancouver early, we were schlepping around to all these different rinks. Like we would go to UBC, went to an, I can't even remember the name of another one, but you know, in, in a world where we're trying to optimize athletes performances and you're talking about, you know, the cream of the crop, these guys are getting paid all kinds of money to, you know, to perform at their best. That does trickle into the off season, and you know when guys trickle into town, um, and, and not having that space for yourself, it, it's just difficult. It's one of those things now where guys have to go to Rogers Arena, get dressed in in their equipment, or pack up their bag, 
and then schlep it all over town, have the ice time, then come back to the rink, do their workout, do their cool down, do their stretching. It's like there's a much better and efficient way. And most of the teams, I'm pretty sure every team around the league has that kind of designated facility. And even, you know, there's little things that maybe you don't think about along the way, right? Um, you know, so when, when I was black acing for the Penguins in the playoffs, it was like the black ace guys, you're at the practice facility every single day, no matter what. The game guys will come to the game ring. So there was that little, you know, wrinkle just to have your own space for guys as well. Um, you know, development camps, training camps, you have, you know, you have groups of guys where in Toronto, my experience was with Sheldon Keith. You know, we would have double uh, sheet practices so we don't have to come off the ice, scrape again and, and go back out. It was like we're doing penalty kill and power play on this pad and we're just going to walk right over across the practice facility to the other pad. So now we had a 40 minute practice where, you know, if, if that's in Vancouver at Rogers Arena, they got to scrape the ice. They got to come back out. That's a you know, that's another 15 minutes that, that you're looking at. So. It's just, it's optimal to have a practice facility and the way teams are building them now, it's like, you know, you're looking at, you ever see those NCAA college programs and the way they build things out? Like, that's the way it should be for players. You ever skate at Britannia, the little community center on the east side? That's the one, Britannia. That's where we were going. <laughs> that's where, yeah. we, and I was like, okay, like, you know, we'll make do for sure. Uh, but it's not ideal. It was a smaller arena. We had, you know, we, we probably had 30 to 35 guys kind of crammed in there. The dressing rooms didn't even fit all of us. So there's like a whole open area up top where right. we were kind of like getting dressed and, and setting things up. It's the NHL. You know what I mean? Like you need to have, you need to have a, a, a top of the line facility where guys can go and and optimize their performance and that's not just during the season that's leading up to the season staying with off-season workouts training uh, and, and that business uh frank we learned yesterday from dan milstein andre kuzmenko's agent that the Canucks weren't exactly thrilled with his plan to spend two months in bali and milstein had to go out and find a mice and find him a trainer and, and all that jazz what do you make of uh, two months in Bali? And why are NHL teams so concerned when guys go abroad in the summer? I I understand. Like, when we first talked about Kuzmenko training in Bali, I was under the impression it was like a two-week vacation thing, which I'm like, hey, for your mental health, you got to check out. You got to go somewhere. And I I was actually like, oh, good for him. He's on vacation and he's training during that time. I thought that was spectacular. Two months is a little different, okay? Like, it's a little different. It's just, I, I think about the guys, you know, going through my experiences playing and training and some of the groups I've been a part of where you almost feel guilty to miss a day. You feel guilty to, like, miss a rep. You see guys going hard on the bike and you're like, I need to push myself that much harder because I'm playing against that guy this year and, and he's at a certain level. If you're gone somewhere for two months, there is an element of, of what I just described that you are missing. To the player's credit, like, I'm sure he worked very hard. I'm sure the agent, you know, did a good job of finding him ice. But I can understand the Canucks, you know, having an issue with it. With all that being said, if he come back, comes back this year and he fills the net, none of that matters, right? Like, you, you, you can have a lot of leeway if your performance is there. Um, so listen, you know, he, he does it this summer. If he comes back and he's, and he's scoring a lot and he's playing great, 
it'll be the last anyone ever thinks about it. The last anyone ever talks about it. But if he comes back and it's an issue and he gets off to a bad start, maybe the foot speed's a little off, maybe the timing's a little off, maybe he's not getting enough shots off during a game, it's like there's a meeting around the corner with all the parties involved and saying that should have never happened. And trust us, it's never going to happen again. But it'll be up to the player's performance ultimately to see how that shakes out. Frank, if he comes back and scores a bunch of goals, this could start a movement of That's NHLers right. to Bali. Like, there may be a bunch of ice rinks popping up in Bali in years to come. <laughs> well, you know what? So so Sam Gagne, um, who's just on a PTO to Edmonton now, he he had a great idea here, here in Ontario where there's a lot of guys who like to go up to the cottage, right? Like, I'm sure cottage, cabin, camp, everyone has like a different term for it, but the cottage. And here in Ontario, it's like one of those things where you do on the weekend – and I, I remember coming back to, to training camp and so many of the guys from Minnesota, Michigan, you kind of go around Manitoba guys and they're like, oh yeah, we were out there all summer. We were on the lake all summer. And, and those guys just felt like, oh, I feel completely refreshed. I feel recharged. And the Ontario guys that were very fortunate to have those kind of properties were like, yeah, I was in the city. I was grinding through, you know, rush hour traffic to get to the gym, then get to the rink. Um, and then, you know, I would grind to get myself up to cottage country and it, it sounds so, such like first world problems, but when you have an avenue to actually check out mentally, um, you know, for the summer, there's something to be said about that, where you go into a season and you're like, man, I missed this. Like, I am so hungry for this. I feel so fresh recharged. So it's, it's about finding that balance between the two of those where you're still engaged, you're still locked in. But you're like, okay, I, I had enough of a, a mental recharge. So what I'm hearing is Sam Gagne and Frank Carrado are going to finance the construction of a practice facility up in Ontario's cottage development, country. Development company. That was leading me to my point. That's what Sam did. So Sam decided to put together a whole like off-season program with a, an on-ice guy, an off-ice guy, and all the guys that were kind of you know going around spending um you know the 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 during the week in the city and then going up to on the weekends it was like no 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 we're going to be the michigan the minnesota the manitoba all that we're going to be like just those all those guys so he actually it's like field of dreams you know if, if you build it they will come <laughs> and and everyone's enjoying themselves up there so um it's i, I think it's a great initiative minnesota michigan manitoba muskoka mm-hmm. uh, massachusetts there you go, yeah. all the m's <laughs> yeah. hey uh dan milstein's other client on the canucks is Ilya mckayev and certainly you watched him do his thing with the leafs before he signed here in vancouver we know that he's all about speed and we never really saw him at 100 percent last year he got hurt in the first preseason game partial acl tear tried to play through it and ultimately they shut him down at the end of the same week that rick tockett took over had surgery now milstein yesterday said you know the recovery's coming along nicely they're hoping for training camp they may be cautious about preseason because they want to be ready for october 11th i don't know your injury history, Frank, or if you've seen other guys that have gone through this, but I think there's this sense in Vancouver that, well, we didn't really see the full McKay of last year, but it sounds like he's healthy. You know, we're expecting this speed burner from day one. We're talking about a knee. Like, that's his moneymaker. Mm-hmm. Should people sort of tread lightly and expect that it might take him a little time to get up to speed? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's funny, like, you mentioned my injury history. So I had ACL reconstruction surgery. And I had the surgery done in February. So I can understand this timeline. And I know in my head, I wanted to get back for the start of the season. It wasn't going to happen. It just, it wasn't going to be early October. 
if I went nine months out, I think nine months is like where they kind of tell you that's where you want to be. That's where, you know, you, you, you've done enough rehab, you've built enough of a foundation back, and you've probably even made some gains when it comes to certain tests that, that you do, whether it's plyometrics, agility, and, and strength. Um, but anything before nine months, you do run a risk of a few things. Like you run the risk of not conditioning it enough and that can, it might not necessarily lead to another ACL, but it could lead to other issues. Maybe there's, you know, you're overcompensating and now your hip is giving you issues or, or your ankle gets, you know, uh, caught a certain way because you're just not quite there yet. So like, listen, it, it's great to, for players to come back early and it, you know, it sounds very heroic and I want to be on the ice with my teammates. I want to, you know, prove myself with this contract. All that stuff is fine and dandy. I think you have to take a step back, whoever's in that camp, whether it's the player, um, whoever's around him, the support group and say, and even the team, to be honest with you, and, and kind of, you know, have a talk and say, our goal is to make the playoffs. So what we need you to be 100% from the time you get back, whether we get an extra two weeks to a month of that, that's irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. There's going to be a stretch run of playoffs or, or of, of hockey from the new year on, basically, where, you know, you can make up some serious ground in this league. And and if Mikheyev is, is feeling really good at that time, then you'll probably thank yourself for giving yourself a little more time uh, just to recondition things. Like, I know I came back, I'm pretty sure I came back on Halloween or just, just before Halloween. And looking back at things, like I went to go do my rehab with Matt Nickel in Toronto, who, you know, all, all these guys train with, and, and it was great. But even looking back at it, I, I, I say to myself, like, I could have waited a couple more weeks. Like, I would have benefited from just just getting myself back to a higher level and not having to think about it a little more. So I just, with, with these kinds of things, it's it's great to get back early, but, like, caution is always better. And then you get to a point where you're like, I don't even think about it anymore. It's such a such an afterthought. They're going to do power play by piecemeal this year, Frank. Last year, Jason King was in charge of the penalty or the power play. He's off to Minnesota, and Rick Tockett saying today it's going to be a combination of Sergey Gonchar himself and the Twins. Gonchar is going to make some trips. He's hoping the Twins make some of the other road games. And then he's going to be involved as well with input from the players. And to be fair, Jason King told us last year, it was very collaborative with the players, particularly with JT Miller. What do you think of the way they're going to be managing the power play this year? Well, let's face it. It's been a pretty good power play, Jeff. We've had a lot of gripes about the Canucks over the last few years. No, power the play component parts are hasn't been one of them. But what do you make of the way they'll be managing it this year? My initial thought, there's a lot of brilliant minds in there, a lot of smart hockey people, but it's too many cooks in the kitchen. And I'll tell you a quick story. So I, I go to play my first season in Europe. I go to Sweden. And the first day I get there, uh, you know, just getting acclimated to everything. But one of the guys comes up to me with a whiteboard and he goes, hey, we're going to have our power play meeting in the other room in our, our little players lounge area. I'm like, OK, great. I'll be right over there. So I hop in there and there's five of us players and he starts talking about it. And he's like, okay, what do you guys want to do on the breakout? And then what do you guys want to do in zone? Who wants to stand where? And I'm like, wait, where's the coach? Where's the power play coach? He's like, no, we do it. Like we do it collectively as a group. We, we do our power play. And I'm like, okay, but now we got five guys 
with five like differing opinions on how we want this thing to run and, and, you know, what kind of set plays we're going to run off face-offs and what our, you know, what's our scheme, what's our philosophy. So what I'm saying is players want to be coached, but they want to have a clear, direct message. And sometimes when there's too many people involved, the messaging from the coaches to the players and the product on the ice, it's like broken telephone. There's too many things. There's too many people involved. Like I, I kind of preferred it always where, this is our, our scheme. This is our mentality. This is what we're trying to do. Let's get out there. We'll do it. And as you're in the process of practicing it or, or you know, uh, executing game to game, you notice little things on the ice as a player that the coach maybe might not have a feel for. That's where you apply your input. But the foundation, the basis of it has to be there already before everyone starts dipping their, their hand in. So it may work great. You know, you're going to have a lot of smart people involved. But it may be one of those things where it's just like there's too many people involved in it now and players are just getting confused and getting frustrated. So um, like if I was kind of running things, I would say, why not? Like, why mess with something that's not broken? Like you're running the power play. You're free to take input from players. You're free to take input from other people around you. But you need to funnel that information if you're going to give it to the players because we need to have a consistent and clear messaging the whole time. Frank, you have a marvelous Labor Day weekend. We need you back at Britannia next week, okay, centralizing with the rest of your teammates. He wants to go skate at that rink in Muskoka. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Or tell Guys, us, let us you, know if Sam Gagne is taking re- reservations for the rink in Muskoka. You will, you will never find me skating at that rink in Britannia again, unfortunately. But <laughs> what are you going to do? Life goes on. <laughs> Good stuff, Frank. Thanks. See ya. Sick Harrison Price from Wall Center, presentation Applewood Auto Group, and hashtags the best and worst of Twitter are brought to you by Jason Hominick of Jason.Mortgage. A recent Sick Harrison Price listener contacted Jason one month before their mortgage renewal. Jason noticed they could get out of their mortgage and get a lower rate, even with the get-out penalty. This listener saved money. Had they waited to renew with the bank, would have cost them $7,000. That's the advantage you get with Jason Hominick on your side. Find him at Jason.Mortgage. I'll start here, Matt. And there's lots of these I picked uh, at Daily Faceoff. Uh, report, WHL's Lethbridge Hurricanes expected to name Bill Peters. Yes, Bill Peters as head coach. Mm. I saw Akeem Alou has uh, spat all over. Well, he said an intermediary who he thinks is um, coming from a good place reached out to try and broker a piece. And his point was, you know, this was 13 years ago and four years ago since it was made public. It's Why now? Still no formal, formal right. apology mm-hmm. of any kind. And now going through a third party, as you mentioned. Yeah. Look, Bill Peters was run out of the NHL, went over to Russia. Maybe he has had some learnings in the four years since we've really uttered his name. Mm-hmm. But. You're Lethbridge Hurricanes. Like, why bring this upon yourself? Well, and, like, you had to have had 100 applications for right. a Western Hockey League exactly. head coaching job. And my question would be, if you're the parent of a kid, why yeah. would you send them to the Lethbridge Hurricanes if Bill Peters is the head coach? Well, I saw somebody on Twitter say, are there any black players on the Hurricanes? And then somebody's response to that is, you know, are there any human beings on the, on yeah, the Hurricanes? Yeah. So we'll see fair, where this one Fair goes. enough. Fair enough. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to go to... Here we are. Uh, Sports Horn, John Horn, our old buddy. Yep. 
Canadians 0 for 4 in singles in the first round of the U.S. Open this year. Only two playing doubles. That's Leila Fernandez and Gabby Dabrowski, who's a doubles specialist. I mean, the U.S. Open was over for Canadians here before it even started. And we watched Layla yesterday. She was very game. Yeah, but she had the yips with her ball toss on serve. Mm-hmm. Like, I was surprised that she was able to push it to a third set because she looked like she was all out of sorts right. uh, out there against the 22nd seed. But she was, as you said, she was game, and she pushed it to a third and deep into a third set. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, this was a finalist at this event a couple of years ago. And, what? yeah, I mean, look, you welcome at it on it not that long ago. Like, it's just been such a an awful year mm-hmm. for Canadian tennis. And uh, just when we thought, you know, maybe this would be the year. Vancouver's Re- uh, Rebecca Marino also game. She loses 7 6 7 6. In a qualifier, though, she wasn't even in the main draw. Oh, that was a qualifier. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. She and Vashik both had to go through qualifying. Yeah. Um, uh, Felix was out early here. Of course, Chapo and Bianca did not even enter with injury. And it's really too bad because this is all ahead of the Labor Cup here next month in Vancouver at Rogers Arena where Felix will be there and some of the biggest names in tennis will be there. And it's happening during uh, quite an ebb for Canadian tennis when we thought perhaps this was the sport that was ready to take off. Uh, at Surrey Eagles, we're ecstatic to announce the hiring of Scott Gomez. Ah. As an assistant coach, welcome to the flock, Gomer. And, of course, he played in mm-hmm. Surrey back in the BCHL days before going on to a Stanley Cup winning career. A couple of cups, in fact, with New Jersey. But Scott Gomez, pride of Anchorage, Alaska. And one of the great guys. Yes. In, I mean, yeah. he will brighten up your day. If you ever have a conversation with Scott, ever in a room with Scott. You better have some time because oh, those are yeah. not short conversations. Oh, no. He loves to talk. He loves to... Uh, He's a very uplifting guy. I'm a big Scott Gomez fan. At Stack Mac, Holly McKenzie covering basketball. Jordy quoting Alanis. Two legends. This is Jordy Fernandez, Canada basketball head coach, talking about the contributions of Nikhil Alexander Walker. Listen to this. There's a song that says, there's 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Do you guys know who sings that song? And they tell him, Alanis Morissette. He says, Alanis Morissette, a Canadian. We were not defending. We were not doing the right things. I think Nikhil was that knife. He came in and played really hard, (laughs) defended when he was open. He made all those threes. So well done, Jordy. No black flies in their (laughs) Chardonnay? A death row pardon, two minutes too late. Uh, well done, Jordy, incorporating some Canadiana in his messaging to the players into media over in Jakarta. And as we mentioned uh, earlier in the show, they're on Friday and they're on Sunday against two better opponents here in Brazil. And Sp- well, certainly Spain. And of course, Jordy is Spanish um, in the next round of the FIBA World Cup. Bit of a somber one to finish here. This is from Gary Woodland, U.S. Open champ at Pebble Beach a couple of years back. Uh, thank you for your support during this time. And then he has posted a, a message. He wants to share a, rec- a recent health development. On September 18th, I'll be having surgery to remove a lesion found on my brain. I was diagnosed a few months ago. I've been trying to treat symptoms with medication. After consulting with medical specialists and discussing with my family, we've made the decision that surgery to remove the lesion is the best course of action. I'm in good spirits with my family and team by my side and so thankful for the love and support. Of everyone. 
Well, wish him the best. Uh, he did not have a particularly good year on tour, and no. you were wondering, is there something amiss there? And now yes, we, there is. Yes, now we find out, and that's hashtags for today. So here's some price from Wall Center presentation, Applewood Auto Group. And Patrick Johnson, who normally joins us on Tuesdays, was... Uh, Deep in the bush of Manning Park. So we're connecting with you on a Wednesday, my friend. I hope you're well. And, um, well, lots of pithy Canuck stuff to get into here as we get closer and closer to training camp. Uh, Rick, talk at the latest Canucks official. And I know you're a veteran of writing on this, PJ. Sort of bemoaning the lack of a practice facility. He had hoped the players would centralize here in Vancouver in mid-August. That didn't happen, but he said, I'm not holding it against them because of the lack of a practice facility. That's what we're asking on the Bodog poll question. Is that holding them back at this stage as an organization, Patrick? I don't know if it's holding them back, but it certainly is a thing that everyone else has, and there's a reason why. It just makes things a little smoother, a little more efficient. Um, And, you know, when you have a team that is uh, having to constantly scramble for practice times, practice locations, I I have to believe that uh, you know NHL players just want to know where they're going and they don't want to sort of go week to week wondering if they're still back in minor hockey. Um, this yeah, practice ring's been a topic for 13 years. I mean, they, it, someone at least joked to me that that was part of the recruitment of Chris Tanev. Um, but uh, it, you go back. I mean, I've written about this. <laughs> I don't even know how many times now. But you go back and you can find references going all the way to basically 2010. They were talking about trying to get something going uh, in in the sort of False Creek Flats plan. There was at one point building it underground. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still some plots of land near the arena. Like, you know, there was, of course, there was a plan to do something at the Plaza of Nations that fell apart. Um, there's not a lot of spaces left. I know there's someone out there who sent me a picture. He said, hey, I was walking near the old RCMPA headquarters. There's an Aquiline development side there. I'm like, well, yeah, I assume they, you know, it's an MST project. That's called the Heather Street Lands. It was approved last year. There is a First Nations cultural center, essentially a community center. There's no rink going in there. Um, I think the next one that could be in the range of things is out in Jericho, but that process is way down the road. That's hardly started. Um, maybe they can convince, I, I mean, as far as I know, there's nothing in going in with the Sanok program uh, project that's going in around the foot of the Broad Street Bridge. Uh, I had heard someone suggest there's that, basically that empty plot of land next to the Camby Street Bridge on the south side. That's where they park, the VPD park all their cars. And that's going to be redeveloped as something. I don't, I don't know if there's space for a rink there. I don't know if the city would really like to put a rink there. I mean, they do need more ice. It's the city itself, ice total is or the the total number of sheets in the city is stagnant at best um despite you know i mean there's been opportunities over the years and they haven't taken them up and now here here this is where they are does it have to be a partnership patrick like uh, does, like does it get to the point where they just have to buck up and develop it on their own like uh, because that seems to be what has delayed it yeah to date and what i would be worried about is that now ownership's putting all this money into the arena with the video board and mm-hmm. the new seats and everything that's mm-hmm. happening over a three-phase, uh, three-year period there, that they look around and go, wow, we're already investing in the arena. Yeah, uh, We don't have the funds available or choose not to make funds available for a practice facility. Would that be a concern of yours? Well, I mean, first of all, on the partnership thing, that's how they've done business. You know, they they build things with people. 
Um, and they don't tend to own, hang on to most of that stuff. Um, they're in the process. And then, you know, they obviously, obviously they own, there's the berry farm and they have other agricultural interests and they own some hotels and they own some, um, they own some restaurants and things like that. But, but um, when it comes to only building those little, they build the large buildings and then they get sold generally by Bob Rennie. Um, that's kind of been their way of doing business. So uh, yeah, I mean, maybe they will have to do that, but that has not been their, their uh, MO. I mean, obviously they own Rogers arena. That's something they own. Um, you do look and wonder if part of this calculus was they were expecting the viaducts. The viaducts are supposed to come down, but who knows when they will. Um, and, and, you know, the city essentially doesn't, as I understand it, doesn't have the budget to do it. So, you know, they would need a development partnership to happen for someone to remove them. Um, you know, certainly, you know, there's always been noise about the, the, the parking lot across the street and what have you, but it's just in the end, it, it, whether it's a partnership or not, there's, there's just not many options left in the city. And the other thing is, you know, you want to make it convenient for your players and when all your players save jt miller live on the west side or in yale town um, that kind of limits your options in terms of what you can develop and where you're going to actually be able to go and it's going to be expensive land's expensive it, you know maybe 20 years ago if they didn't think you know it, obviously before the aquilines bought the team but you know 20 years ago they were at eight ranks um, that was originally picked because 30 years ago a lot of the players lived in Burnaby and New West, and it was con- convenient for that group of players. But that's not where players live anymore. So it, there's a lot of considerations at stake, and not a lot of options. And I think one of the things, too, guys, on the partnership front, at least with the city of Vancouver, is uh, the Canucks generally are done with the practice facility by one or two o'clock in the afternoon each yeah. day. And there are still lots of hours in a day that a sheet of ice yeah. can be used for public skate, figure skating, minor hockey. Uh, and as Patrick said, like you think about Yale Town has sprouted up and to meet the needs, the recreational needs of the people that live in all those towers, they are underserved when yeah. it comes to a public sheet of ice, which is why Plaza of Nations makes so much sense in so many ways. But at the same time, a practice facility for an NHL team doesn't have to be attached to or right next door to their own rink. When I think of the Kraken right. in Seattle, their practice facilities at Northgate, I think. Yep. Uh, Vegas is out in Summerlin. Uh, and so really LA's it is sort of finding window, that, you know, like, yeah. yeah, finding that sweet spot yeah. that's not too far for the yeah. players, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, right downtown or across the street. Well, from and, Rogers and, Arena. and gentlemen, I, I don't dispute that ideally a partnership with the city that gets more ice available recreationally for the citizens of Vancouver is a great idea. But how much longer are we going to wait yeah. on that partnership and how much will it hold the Canucks back as they go into free agency period after free agency period and guys go, oh, you don't have a practice facility or like this year we're talking doesn't get the group together um you know, for an extra couple of weeks because they don't have this, the facilities available. I, I mean, let's not forget as well. I mean, as much as talking, one of them would said, Hey guys, come on back. I mean, that was, yes, there was an element of that, as I understand it, in Pittsburgh, but that has to be on the players, right? Like talk, it can't mandate that that's those are in the contracts. Now Fair. there's a culture aspect. You want to encourage players. And yeah, if you have a rink, the players are allowed to use it. And, you know, this was something that we go way back to the, the fine the team incurred for their postseason skates um, and, and the rule change that's come out of it that, that you know, if players want to ask to skate with a, a, with a coach, they are allowed to do so. It has to be approved. But, but yeah, the, the mere idea that you have a base that they can center themselves at, um, 
I mean, I know there are players that like to use Rogers, but the you know the ice isn't there, and as has been noted, there's been a lot of renovations going on. Who knows even if it could be any? You know, that that makes sense. They have to update their rink at some point, so you know you got to do it in the summer. Um, but yeah, the, the lack of a centralized base, I think, more than anything, it's not so much. You know, every team practices anywhere, every anytime. You know, you go on the road, you're practicing where facilities get used to it, whatever. But just that idea of the base that is the standard now, and that. That is what set the Canucks have set themselves apart. They don't have it. I mean, even Calgary, if you know, they, the, the the new arena plan is supposed to include a practice facility. And assuming that plays out, that will leave just one team in the NHL that doesn't have their own dedicated practice facility. And that is your Vancouver Canucks. As we chew on quotes uh, from the QA at, at sportsnet.ca, uh, I thought, I mean, there's been so much focus the last couple of years on penalty killing, and the Canucks have really overhauled their penalty killers when you think of Carson Soucy and Ian Cole and Teddy Bluger and then uh, P.S. Suter. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Talkett says, these guys are very good penalty killers. They're grittier guys. They're willing to block shots. They don't let pucks through them. They knock pucks down. That's what good penalty killers do. Mm. Didn't name names, didn't call anybody out, but essentially is saying the guys that have been doing it for the last couple of years, they didn't do any of that stuff. Well, to paraphrase someone that once answered a question to you, this is who they had. Um, <laughs> no, I. it was obvious to everyone that one of the problems that this team was facing over the last couple of seasons was an inability to stop the cross ice pass. You know, the path, the Royal roads pass, as we call it, call it across the slot that makes the goalie move in sort of the maximum amount. It's the toughest save for a goalie to make. And the Canucks were pretty terrible at that. Um, you know, blocking shots. Sure. I mean, that's part of the whole nature of defending now is, you know, they talk about layers and having how many guys between the shooter and the net before it even gets to the goalie. Uh, that, that of course is, you know, you do need to find players who are, it's not even blocking. It's just the presence, right? Like they take away the opportunity, you know, as we saw happen for so much of the season with Elias Pettersson, it wasn't even that he wasn't firing it into shin pads. It's that he knew the shot wasn't there. Teams are conscious of not giving away possession that way. Um, so that's one aspect. And yeah, that it's sort of that, I think it's just that understanding of how to, take that space away and clearly at least the way they were trying to do it the personnel and the the system didn't match and we'll see you know it's hard it's hard to imagine them being terrible through that, that terrible three years in a row but you never know right i guess the other question then is at the other end of the ice on the power play this suggestion of you know by committee and we wondered when jason king was uh, shown the door uh, and I'm glad he landed on his feet in Minnesota, and I'm sure uh, he'll continue to, to have success. And, and I think he was well-regarded. I was a little surprised, actually, that they moved off him, but Rick Tockett said that there's too many bodies around at sort of that coaching level. But uh, moved off of him without a full-time replacement well, that's is quite saying. interesting. I mean, the the yeah. Sedins are part-timers, and Sergey Gonchar is in and out. Part-timer. And Yogi and... Svekovsky is around as the skills coach, but... Uh, it is going to be fascinating. And this notion that this leadership group that he continues to speak about you know, he, he, it sounds like he's going to empower them to you know, have a legitimate voice in the way the puck moves, or at least the way they want it to move, uh, on the power play. I would say the Gonchar lesson is really interesting. Uh, that, you know, here was a guy whose job, this part-time is unfair to him because he was part-time here, but he was working the job right. full-time. Um, and, and I think, I think, a lot about the discussion. I thought a lot about the discussion he and I had earlier in the season. And then, then honestly, the, it, it, uh, uh, sort of a follow-up conversation I had with Mike Komasarek at development camp, but just the, 
the, the, the way you can interact because of text messaging and video and, and all kinds of things, the way these guys can interact with the players, um, it's so you can be so much more in depth now because of, you know, all the things I think many ways we've learned because of the pandemic, you know, things like video conferencing and sending clips and just people are so attuned to that, um, that the, the sort of the collective idea that we are going to work this as a group. And, you know, it was, it was funny because I was looking through my old, my photos, just some, the other day, just sort of looking back on the year or whatever. And I came across a photo that I, I took of, um, of of I think it was actually Talkit and King and you know the likes of Miller and Patterson like the power play PP1 they were working together out at UBC and I kind of made the joke because they were standing around talking it looked like the scene from Bull Durham where they couldn't decide what they were going to get for uh, their teammates uh, wedding and, and the recommendations and all that and I've made a joke about that but, but there very much is this sense of the give and take like these guys know how to play they know what a good power play looks like this power play has had success obviously the Sedines have a lot of experience in that regard. So the idea that maybe they're going to take more of a collective approach didn't surprise me to say that, well, no, we're, we know, you know, the structure's not that complicated. Everyone's going to do the one, three, one, and then you've got to figure out what's happening and how do you adjust and what are the little plays you're going to run between players? Um, yeah, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it goes and maybe it won't work and you really do need the general in charge of, of the power play. Um, but whether he's there or not, you know, I, it's going to be the interesting, to me, it's the interesting execution question. And yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can fully believe that Sergei Gonchar's role will evolve. I mean, he signed on to do it one way. It sounded like it worked pretty well. Part of the rationale is because he made a choice that he wanted to be around for his kids more than he was, especially late in his career when he was like playing in Montreal and his family basically lived in Dallas and things like that. Um, and his kids are going into university and, and he wants to sort of be there for him and, have a bit of it all and he he said it was amazing how much you know he could send guys even if he wasn't there he'd watch the game at night he'd make down some notes he'd clip some stuff because they have this incredible system behind the scenes and he'd send the guys and he said you'd get responses from the guys like first thing in the morning you know it's that classic thing i think most people do now they wake up they look at your phone what's the weather you know whatever else they do and in that sequence canucks players were getting involved with what was being sent to them. And I mean, that was the same thing Mike Komasarek said about um, the kids he was working with in the, on the development side of things, that, that there's just players are attuned to sort of feedback and thinking about this kind of thing and being in the center of the discussion um, in a way that, yeah, maybe you, you, maybe it is now time. It shouldn't be surprised from my, from my standpoint that we are trying something different. I thought Tockett's answer on third line center was interesting. Because we all thought that Pius Suter would just slot right in. He's asked, do you have a true third-line center after Patterson and Miller? His answer right now, yeah, it's a committee. Production-wise, we'll see. I'm not comparing us to the Stanley Cup chance, but you look at Vegas with their lineup, they kind of spread it around. They did a nice job, and everybody contributed. Can, be, can we be that type of team where we spread it around? And this may just be messaging that, hey, Suter nothing's going to be gifted to you at training camp. Bluger and Nils Amon are there fighting for it. But what did you make of that comment? Well, it, a little bit of the old uh, Travis Green getting mad at us if we talked about a first line, a second line, a third line, and a fourth line. You know, that no, that's the, that's the Beagle line. 
Um, a little bit of that. I, I yeah, I yeah, but Travis only had third lines. That yeah, was the problem. He had four third lines. So, <laughs> but you know, the the idea of of not labeling this is what these guys do and that's it. I get it. I mean, I I thought it was mostly just him being KG. I mean, it's still pretty obvious what the talents of the various players are. Um, last year, you know, if you looked at that uh, uh, Oman line. In general, they were sent out to sort of save, give give the other players a rest. You know that 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 the the there were times obviously where they would ride. Hey, Dakota Josh was playing great. We're going to ride that line. You know there were times where they did that. But as a general rule, this was a team that went in the crucial moments. It was JT Miller or Elias Elias Pettersson that were on the ice. Um, and if they needed a goal, that's what they were going for. Now, there were obviously some examples, like I said, where that wasn't always the case. And I think that's what we're going to see. It's it's going to be situational. What do you actually need? You know, what what can you expect from these players in this moment? Who's likely going to be on the ice against them? And trying to optimize it from that standpoint. So, I yeah, like I said, it more for me, it was more just sort of, it was more just trying to be a bit cagey about what your plans are for the season, even if it's kind of clip kind of obvious for everybody. Right. Uh, I know you caught our interview with Milstein yesterday and McCaff is going to have another consult here with doctors. And as Milstein says, I'm trying to tell him it's not a sprint. So how closely will you be watching McCaff and how much he wants to be involved early on? Right. I'm sure he's excited to get back. And of course, how much the Canucks may say, Hey, uh, let's make sure we play the long game here and save you for the regular season, not just camp and preseason. Well, that's it. You know, it, it's a long stretch to the season. Obviously, you want to be re- fit and raring, ready to go right off the bat. But um, I, I, it, it, it was. I, I always was going to be impressed if he'd be back and fully ready to go. I mean, he's coming back from a substantial injury. Surgery was some time ago. Uh, we are sort of at the end of that. And it is, it is you know, look at all the guys that have come through. You know, we can start your list with OEL last year. Go back to Brock Besser. Go to Petey. You know, whatever the injury is, if you don't have that full summer of skating and you try to come back right away, um, it it never works out. So, you know, the idea that Mikheyev was going to be 100% back, you know, I mean, maybe I should have said this a bit louder at the beginning, but... It is, it is to me about, is he fully fit and ready to play? And has he had the full sort of preseason? I mean, obviously the offseason has been disrupted because he won't have had a full offseason. Um, you know, the, it's going to be about, are you ready to go? Are you ready to play? And obviously you want to have your full lineup at the beginning of the season. Hopefully the Canucks are smarter than that. And they recognize that it's the, it's the marathon and not the, not the start that matters. They've been pretty nonchalant about, cap compliance and the fact that they see path forward here. Is there a world in which they know more than others have let on that McKayev may not be ready uh, for the start of the season and could be a candidate to start the year on LTIR? I mean, that's 10 games, right? Like that takes you into November, which seems long. (laughs) Got to have a good start, Peach. Got to be better this October, as we all know. Yeah. I mean, I, like I That's said, it's, the, the marathon matters more than the start, but obviously the start <laughs> connects <laughs> in the big picture does matter. Um, and and so that is the balance that that you come back to when you look at a guy like Mikheyev. Uh Yeah, you know, I had that ponder. I actually had that thought as well, Jeff, when I, you know, we, when, when I saw Dan's comments yesterday, um, just in terms of, 
exactly that. Like, is are there more balls in the air than we realize? And I, th- I think that's always possible. Um, I, I always figured that part of their thinking here is they don't, they don't have to make a decision until the end of training camp. Um, and as I think we noted last week, you know, in theory, you could send Pearson down. You could waive him before the season and assign him to Abbots for the start of the season, and then you are cap compliant, and then you work your way back from there. Um, I certainly think that's possible. Um, I'm sure they would rather not do that, but if, if the point is to win games and you don't think Tanner Pearson is going to help you win games, well, I guess you're going to have to pay, you know, you pay him $3 million to be in, in the AHL. I mean, they have, they have done that before um, uh, with a guy that made twice as much, but uh, I, yeah, I, I think, I think we're mostly sitting here waiting for sort of the, to see how things play out. Somebody's going to get hurt. And, you know, I've, I've, like I've said, I've, I've been meaning to actually go and look at this, but off the top of my head there, you know, in general, there is someone who does not start the season who you might've penciled in as being on the roster before training camp. And that has become a general trend. Well, and there's also the, there's also the possibility gentlemen that they don't submit a 23 man roster, right? Like you can go shorter and then you're in LTIR and then you can you have add one and that. one. Exactly. Yeah. You have one D one. I mean, they, mm-hmm you know they go on the road they're going to have 7d like there's just no way they start that that first season that trip at the beginning of the season was 6d so they are going to have to make some choices but yeah exactly you can go one and one and (laughs) if you have to put some on a plane put some on a plane it's not like the schedule that they open the season with is exceptionally difficult to navigate your way around in that term good to see you back from the bush thanks for this we'll catch up next tuesday take care guys have a great labor day Garrison Price from Wall Center, presentation Applewood Auto Group. You can text us, 778-402-9680, to the Greg Clips text message inbox. Greg Clips. It's going to be great. You were so prepped for that. I was. Errors and omissions from yesterday's program and beyond. For some reason, I thought Doug Peterson, the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, had CFL experience. I couldn't find any there. I allow for the possibility maybe he was at a camp once upon a time or something like that, but there's no official stats or records of Peterson, uh, Peterson in the CFL. Uh, listener corrected me. I Talking about Francesco Zaccolini to Tom Brady, that was revealed as part of the investigation into uh, the inflation levels of football. I called it inflate gate, but it's deflate gate. Ah, you got inflation on your mind. Mm-hmm. Fair yeah, fair enough. We all do. So those are the E's and O's from yesterday's program and again beyond. And it's I, time for I got one more, Matt. Oh. One more error. On my part, actually. Um, oh. a little one from yesterday. Honesty. So when the the podcast gets published, it gets published on a web player, and on that web player there's chapter markers where it'll say the guest name or what segment we have. And I misspelled the word errors in the se- for the section called errors oh, and omissions. Wow. Well, we have a long history of making mistakes within the body of errors and omissions, yes. Trav. So you're in fine company there. Yeah, I was proud of myself. Off very, very good one. accountability as well. Great to hear your voice. I got to be honest yeah. on the podcast. You'll sleep better tonight. Yes, now that you it was bugging me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want a little impromptu pop mart here, bud? There's Something you're uh, zero chance. itching to see? No, zero chance. No. That new Ferrari movie looks really fun. Huh? Adam yeah. Driver? Yeah, no, not As a Enzo big, Ferrari? Not a big fan. No? No. How do you feel about... Um, this is just Ferrari? There's what's no her Ford, name? No uh, Ford in this one? No, this one's just <laughs> Ferrari. Okay. 
Uh, what's her name? Woodley? Uh, Shailene? Yeah, Shailene. See, right She's there, in it. Right, right there is the reason I don't do Pop Mart. I have no idea who that is. Really? Yeah. She used to date Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, no. What about Penelope Cruz? Like you know her. Like She's her. in it as well. Yeah, we're a big fan of her. Okay. Yeah. It's good stuff, my bro. <laughs> Time to move on here to Jeff's Bodog <laughs> line of the day. Bodog, your swords free casino games. Poker strategy, sports odds. Who you like? What you got, Jeff? Uh, calendar turns to the end of the month here. College football starts this weekend. Yeah. Well, it started last weekend. Fair enough. Week zero, right, they call the... it. But this is the full slate. Everyone right. gets to play this week. Washington Huskies uh, ranked 10th. Yeah. A lot of returning talent there. Is a pretty good quarterback. 14-point favorites at home mm. against Boise State. I like the, mm. the dogs to, to cover at home. Oh, okay. David Benefield's kids at That's Boise right. State. Yeah. On your Bodog line of the day, yeah, no, they're expecting big things down in Seattle from the Huskies. Great quarterback returning, terrific receivers. They got a pass rusher who's going to be a high NFL pick. So, yeah, lots of excitement down there. Thanks for listening, everybody. A reminder to subscribe to Secure Some Price and Rinkwide wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on social media, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And, of course, support the community sponsors you hear us talking about. Keep it local.